Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 143 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Today on the show, we'll be discussing the military fantasy subgenre, and I'm joined by three guests. So first up, we've got our producer, John Joseph Adams. He's the editor of Lightspeed and Nightmare Magazines, and also the series editor of Best American Science Fiction and Fantasy. He's also edited more than 20 anthologies, and his latest books are the post-apocalyptic reprint anthology Wastelands 2 and the original anthology of military fantasy Operation Arcana. So, John, welcome back. Thanks. Uh, glad to be here. Uh, I've got the sexy, um, you know, post-cold voice, so uh, if people don't recognize me, that's why. <laughs> All right. Then next up, we've got Mike Cole, who you may remember from our panel on Soldiers in Science Fiction in Episode 75, and our panel on Hackers in Episode 102. As a security contractor, government civilian, and military officer, his career has run the gamut from counterterrorism to cyber warfare to federal law enforcement. His Shadow Ops series has been described as Black Hawk Down meets the X-Men, and the latest book in that series, Gemini Cell, is out now. So, Mike, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me back. And also joining us today for the very first time is Weston Oaks. He's a military veteran with more than 30 years of military experience, and also the author of 20 books, including the military fantasy series SEAL Team 666, which is currently in development at MGM, with Dwayne The Rock Johnson attached to Star. So, Weston, welcome to the show. Thanks, David. Okay, and so when I think of military fantasy, kind of the first thing that comes to me is all the big battle scenes in Lord of the Rings. And I know that Mike is a big Tolkien fan. So I just want to start out, first of all, and talk about just, Mike, what do you think about the way that Tolkien handles war and soldiers? Oh, uh, I mean, this is a hard one to comment on because Tolkien is such a huge piece of my childhood and who I am as a person that it's difficult for me to get the kind of distance I would need to describe it. Um, but he does have, instead of me talking about the obvious thing, which is what he gets wrong, let me take hmm. a second and talk about what he gets right. Um, he does wonderful griping, soldierly griping, and I'll never forget, I'm sure probably everybody uh, on the panel and, and listening to this knows, is there's this great scene when uh, Frodo is in uh, a, 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 held captive in Barad-dur, I think it's in Barad-dur, and there's these two orc guards that are down front griping about their post, and one of them says, I tell you, it's no game serving down in the city. And that remains one of my favorite Tolkien quotes, apart from the Eowyn speech. And it really captures the sort of listlessness and um, idle uh, chatter that, that go on with soldiers. But it is, I will admit, uh, like a, a, a rare moment of, uh, of reality and, and, and getting it right in what's otherwise a field of, of really missing the mark. Well, well, no, but say a bit more about that, though. I mean, he, he sort of doesn't address it. Um, I mean, uh, big military engagements, even big military engagements back then, are not about individual heroism. And they've never been about individual heroism, even in the days, in the ancient and medieval days, where you had um, champions that would ride out and do battle while two armies stood behind them, and then the loser would go home. Because that really isn't an organized conflict. It's, it's a duel, right? Um, is that military engagements have always turned on cohesion and the broad combination of efforts of thousands, you know, or even hundreds of thousands of cogs in a machine. And their ability to work together or not work together has what's turned the, the face of the battle. And 
Tolkien necessarily because he's he has dramatic goals that he's trying to achieve is writing you know you have you what do we remember about Tolkien the battles he describes we remember the Eowyn speech which I mentioned we remember um Gandalf coming you know with the army to save um Helm's Deep you know look for me at, at the cock's crow you know in the coming of the dawn um we don't see that deck plate level um, grinding professionalism that has been necessary even in medieval battles. It's funny. I'm reading this book now um, called The Longest Afternoon, which talks about 400 members of the King's German Legion that really were a pivotal uh, piece of turning the Battle of Waterloo, uh, which could have gone either way in favor of the Allies against Napoleon. And what I'm struck by is no matter how involved I get in the individual stories of any of these 400 men, none of them are doing anything particularly special. It's the aggregate of what they're all doing at the same time that makes the difference. And this is not modern warfare as we know it by any stretch of the imagination. You know, the rifle has just come into common use at the time that this battle is fought. Mm. Uh, so, I mean, Weston, I think you're a big Tolkien fan as well, right? Do you agree with what Mike is saying here? I do. I think Mike is, is really accurate in saying that Tolkien, um, as grandiose and wonderful as the Battle of Helm's Deep is, and it's one of my favorite battles of all time, it's a false battle. It's not real. Nowhere would it be vested in any reality that I'm part of. Um, but what he does get right, and you can tell that, you know, because of the, the uh, conscription service the English military had, he was, um, he had, he had been in the military and he knows the small things. He knows the broken soldier. He knows, he knows when, when somebody has seen too much or done too much. He even gets it right with, with the two orc guards and the way that some of the characters, as they're going to war, talk about each other and talk to each other. Those small things he gets right, and it makes me, it allows me to forgive him for forgetting the big, wide swath of, of warfare wrong. That said, you know, I really don't think he missed that much. It's just there's certain military strategy, and there's, and there's certain ways that, that units perform operations that he just didn't know about because, you know, he wasn't a general, he wasn't a colonel, you know, he was, he was who he was. Well, right. And I mean, speaking of the high officers like that, I mean, that's one thing when I think about Tolkien, I think of it, the story kind of being told from the point of view mostly of kings and and things like that, and not so much the grunts. Um, I don't know. Do you agree with that? Do you think that he could have done more to present the sort of foot soldier point of view? Well, you know, Frodo was a foot soldier. You know, Bilbo was a foot soldier. Those those guys were the quintessential grunts. They were pulled from nothing, told to do everything, and given absolutely no support all the way through. Uh, which is, which to me is what a grunt is. Um, so he covered the grunt point of view there. I mean, it's it's a hell of a lot more exciting to know what's going on, which is what he, I think, why he chose to use. Um, so many points of view from so many elevated ranks because a, a grunt is like a mushroom. He's kept in the dark and fed shit until he's needed. That's it, period. So w with that point of view, um, it's really hard to get the story across. My editors over at um, Solaris for my Grunt Life series were lamenting that my character doesn't know much. And I said, well, it's called Grunt Life. It's about a, a low-level soldier. It's about a grunt. He doesn't know. You know, there's, there, there's no way he knows what's going on. He just has to take it as it comes. Right. And so, Mike, do you want to add, add anything to that in terms of the uh, officers versus the grunts? No, I, I and I think it's I actually think it's brilliant. Um, I think Wes hit the nail on the head. And, uh, and the, the irony here is if, I, if I'm correct, I believe Wes was enlisted uh, when he was in. Am I right, Wes? 
Yes. Right. And I'm, and I'm an officer. So we've, we do have the opposite ends of that spectrum. And this is something where in a modern army, uh, that's really different in the respect that um, there is far less division between a member of the officer class and an enlisted person now than there has ever been in the history of armed conflict, um, including in um, Tolkien's day when he was serving. But I'll give you an example. I once did uh, joint exercises with the uh, Saudis, and Saudi officers are royalty, uh, just like they were in the medieval world that Tolkien was describing. And I had a, a Saudi guy hand me, or hand me his rucksack and tell me to hump it because he was an officer and they don't carry rucksacks. And like, there was this moment of cultural disconnect where I had to tell him like, sorry, man, you know, you need to carry your own rucksack. I don't care who you are um, because we do things differently in America. But it was this incredible realization of like, wow, I'm really interacting with a medieval society for whom these things are normal. And uh, Tolkien, you have to remember that Tolkien is a linguist and a medievalist before he was a fiction writer. So he had to be very, very aware of that. Um, and you know, the experience, and that's why Aragorn was such a revolutionary character that he is this King who is willing to go out and be a ranger, which now ranger is cool to us because we grew up with the term from D and D where rangers <laughs> are awesome and badass. But back <laughs> then there's a, you know, the, the term ranger, as I know, it comes from Einhard's Chronicle of the life of Charlemagne. It's one of the great primary sources about the dark ages. If people want to read it, it's very short and available in translation. Um, but bush rangers, these guys are vagrants. Like they're not cool. It's not good to be a bush ranger. If you're a bush ranger, you're like one step removed from a bandit. Like you fall on really hard times. Can I just jump in here? Like uh, just hearing these two guys talk has is sort of like making me uh, sort of sheepish about the fact that I even edited this book because it's like the depth of what I don't know. Like in the face of this sort of expertise is sort of staggering. Um, I, I was sort of thinking about how, uh, you know, there's this workshop for writers and editors called Launchpad where you can go and you can learn about astronomy so that, you know, you can get uh, astronomical science correct. And they just recently announced someone's doing one on quantum physics as well. Like, if they had one about, you know, military stuff, like, I, I'd go want to go sign up for that, too, just so that I could try to avoid uh, any of the mistakes that I'm sure I allowed to seep into the book uh, from the writers that I brought on who weren't military people. Um, but, uh, yeah, I just, uh, <laughs> I, well, I, I don't, I don't know if you guys read the rest of the book, but I hope I didn't allow any glaring errors in there. John, I, I, I said this uh, on the last panel I was on with Wes. So Wes, I apologize because you've heard this before is I really firmly believe that the military experience is universal and that you as a civilian being outside the military have just as valid a military experience interacting with the military from your perspective as Wes and I do for having been vets. I really feel like the experience of refugees and non-combatants which is one of the reasons why I gave you a POW story mm -hmm. is really valid. And so like, I, I gotta say you're, you're fine, man. You're <laughs> totally fine. Also, let me add to that, John, that your point of view coming at it as kind of, you know, bright eyed and open-minded is exactly representational of a lot of the audience that we're, you know, hoping will pick up Operation Arcana and take a look at, because, you know, they're going to see the cover, they're going to look at the names. And for those who aren't in the military, they're going to give it a go. And basically, you're the one who represents them in, in your ability to look at a story and go, okay, I get this. I, there's, there's some authenticity here that I don't know for a fact, but I feel it as I read it. And that's important. Mm, mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. Well, thanks. I feel better now. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, but, but what you guys are talking about brings up this. We had a, a listener question from John Schuyler, and he said he'd be interested to just contrast 
uh, fiction written by combat veterans with that written by non-soldiers. And I mean, when you read a story, can you tell the difference? Do you think there is something um, identifiably uh, veteran-like about certain books? Uh, John, we've been running our mouths. Why don't you take that one first, since you're the editor? Right. Well, you know, I mean, I think uh, a good writer can be very convincing whether or not they have that experience or not. Um, you know, maybe uh, they don't have the experience, but they did the right research and they and they were able to convince me. So, like, I think plenty of writers probably could trick me into thinking that they actually had served. Um, I mean, that certainly happens all the time with science, where you think like, oh, this this person must be a quantum physicist or something, given all this science that they got right in the story, or at least the way that feels right. Uh, but it turns out, no, they just did the right research. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think, and, and, you know, I hope that the stories in, in the anthology all come off that way, whether or not the, you know, they were written by uh, veterans. But, um, you know, and plenty of the people that are, are in here, or I mean, several of the people that are in the book, I, I know for a fact that they were, they came nowhere near <laughs> any sort of service. So, um, like, uh, probably Genevieve Valentine's the biggest example where it's like, okay, she's about as opposite of uh, a veteran as I can think of, like, in terms of her life experience. Um but, uh, you know, uh, hopefully, I, I, you know, people who do know what they're talking about can read that story and still appreciate it for what it is. I mean, it felt like authentic to me, but. Well, yeah, I, I agree, John, with what you're saying about research. I mean, when I read George R. R. Martin, he's not a military veteran, but at least from my perspective, it seems totally authentic to me. It's a mm-hmm. great example. That is a great example. Uh, George R. R. Martin. And not just that, but like George R. R. Martin writes from the point of view of Cersei Lannister. George R. R. Martin is obviously not a female queen. Um, but he writes these things with such incredible, compelling and uh, convincing uh, reality that you, you can't help but believe in them. Um, and and the, uh, I'd also want to point out that John Keegan, who uh, uh, Wes is certainly familiar with, I'm, I'm not sure about it, he, he is the foremost, one of the foremost military historians in the world, in, in the history of time. And he taught... Uh, at the Royal Military Academy. So there's entire, he just passed away recently, and his book, The Face of Battle, is one of the most revered and universal foundational books on war uh, that, that's revered by the military. And an entire generation of British officers have been trained by him. Um, and he grew up, he had some kind of um, uh, uh, physical ailment growing up that kept him from serving, and he never served in the military a day in his life, and is one of the most pivotal figures in the military in in, in the Western world. Are there other books, Mike, that you think that uh, authors who want to get the battle stuff right should be reading for research? Oh yeah, uh, Paul, <laughs> uh, oh my God, we'll be here all day. Um, uh, Paul Fusell's Wartime uh, is a fantastic, fantastic description of the foot soldiers' experience in World War One. He has a whole chapter on military pettiness that's titled "Chicken Shit," um, mm-hmm. and it, and it, it does nothing but delve into the kind of like administrative and bureaucratic hurdles that military members face that just drive us insane and make us get out of the military. Um, I think uh, Steve Cole's "Ghost Wars" is an incredible piece uh, if you want to read about. Um, Modern counterterrorism. Obviously, Mark Bowden's Black Hawk Down is fantastic. This longest afternoon that I'm reading is great. Stephen Pressfield's The Afghan Campaign, which is a historical fiction work that right. really captures, um, I think, what a foot like. Look, I don't know what a Macedonian pikeman under Alexander the Great experience really would have been, but man, does it feel authentic. It feels <laughs> authentic, doesn't it? Yeah. It, it really does. It's incredible. Um, I mean, but honestly, uh, I, I could. I, if, if you, I, I could name titles and authors all night, and I wouldn't mm. reach the end of my list. There's a lot of really great stuff out there. 
Hey, uh, what do you guys think of uh, Bernard Cornwell? I mean, he's, uh, you know, mainly a historical fiction writer, but uh, some of his stuff is sort of veered into the realm of fantasy, like he had uh, an Arthurian series uh, that I read and I, I enjoyed when I was younger. Uh, curious, like, what do you guys think of him as, as far love as military him. authenticity goes? Good? Love yeah. him, love him, love him, love mm-hmm. him. I read... Uh, the the Richard Sharp series is absolutely fantastic. Yep. Um. So well. Look, man. If this guy is 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 using taking dramatic license, then I don't even see it. Um. <laughs> his Thomas of Hookton uh, series, which begins with the Archer's Tale, is just top yeah. notch. Um. I think he he is a you know look the best writers of nonfiction history. Um. Really understand how to put dramatic beats in a story and make it work as a story so that it pulls you along. Um. And the best writers of historical fiction know how to nail the history so that you really feel immersed in something that's real. And if you know what you're talking about, you don't get thrown out of the story. And hmm. Cornwell's one of these guys who could have just as easily gone the nonfiction route and been right. amazing. He's incredible. Yeah, you know, The Archer's Tale is actually a funny case where it's like, uh, I think it's like worth mentioning here in a little bit more detail, just because like I think people who like military fantasy would probably enjoy that book, because even though it's not, I don't think it has any fantastical elements, but it kind of feels like epic fantasy. Um, it has some really great details in it, like the mechanics of shooting the bow and how it like tears up his arm. And it's like, uh, that's when I was like, oh, that's what bracers are for to protect your arm from that or whatever, you know, and it's like, um, and actually that particular book, the first book in the series, I believe the first one was actually supposed to be called Harlequin, uh, cause that's like the villain's name in the, in the story or something. Um, and that is what it's called in the UK, but, uh, his American publishers, I guess, were, uh, too afraid that, uh, American audiences would think it's like a Harlequin ro- uh, romance or something. Um, so they went with the super, super bland, uh, title that I hate so much, The Archer's Tale. Uh, but anyway. Uh, all right, well, John, let's move into the like a little bit more of the big names in military fantasy. You want to want to just give us a rundown, like who are some of the the biggest names in military fantasy that uh, listeners should know about? Uh, well, Mike, uh, you know, not just because he's on this panel, and and Wes as well. Uh, they're they're two of the big ones. That's uh, you know, they're a bit. That's a big reason why I wanted them both to be on this, on this panel with us, and of course, why I invited them to the uh, anthology. Um, you know, Glenn Cook is a big one, you know, with his Black Company series, uh, Elizabeth Moon, uh, with her Paxinarian, uh, series. Um, and, you know, those are sort of all big ones that, uh, you know, come immediately to mind. Um, you know, T.C. McCarthy, uh, you know, he's written some and, you know, he has a story in the anthology. Uh, Simon R. Green, uh, you know, maybe not so much uh, known as military fantasy, but, um, you know, he's in the book and, and he's sort of written some related stuff. Um, and, uh, yeah, so I mean, those are those sort of the names that uh, initially come to mind. Uh, I'll, I'm probably not thinking of people that I, I asked to participate and then they couldn't or whatever. But oh, uh, Tanya Huff as well. She's also in the book, um, and you know she's she's written on that subject before. Um, so you know those are those sort of the big names. Uh, I, I think. I mean, you know, although like I agree with uh, what you guys had said before about George R. R. Martin, um, even though. Uh, he's not typically thought of as in, in this particular genre. Um, certainly, his battles are, are, you know, feel just super authentic and they're riveting. And um, you know, Battle of Blackwater. I mean, that's like a large inspiration for me doing this book at all. Uh, you know, that and you know, Battle of Helm's Deep. It's like those were sort of my key battles for you know, like that's the kind of thing that I wanted to try to do in the book. And uh, although, of course, uh, the book doesn't just. Uh, deal with epic fantasy type, you know, sort of medieval type um, battles. It, it, it runs the gamut from that type of battle to, uh, you know, military fantasy that takes place in the modern day or uh, with modern day soldiers and that kind of thing. So, I mean, that's and, and, and you know, that's the other key, too, is that the genre of military fantasy does 
you know, encompass that wide range of material. Just like military science fiction can take any sort of number of forms from like near future stuff that deals with a very, you know, sort of contemporary feeling militaries to far future stuff that's, you know, essentially space opera. So, uh, yeah, I think so. That's why I wanted the anthology to run that gamut as well and showcase the diversity of what you can do with um, military fantasy. Well, right. And so you mentioned Glenn Cook. And, you know, I, I said Tolkien's kind of the first example that comes to mind for me in this genre. And Glenn Cook is the second, even though I've never actually read any of the Black Company books, but people just talk about them oh, uh, so much. <laughs> uh, do you guys like Mike and Wes, do you just want to talk about Glenn Cook and just sort of what is his place in military fantasy? Let me jump in here if I can, Mike, because um, I'm a Glenn Cook geek. I actually got to meet him last year at MidSouthCon, uh, which was kind of cool, uh, especially his story about writing about um, because, you know, I was, I was a working soldier and, and, and I'm still a working, um, military civilian who goes back and forth to Afghanistan and does things. And you always wonder, well, do I really have enough time? Well, he wrote that first book working on the assembly line, um, the car assembly line in, in Detroit. He would write like a few paragraphs and then turn and do a rivet. And then he would go back and write a few paragraphs, turn into a rivet. So whenever I think I don't have enough time, <laughs> I think of that story. Okay. That said, um, he really got the small unit, the grunt, the, the, the folks that don't have any support, the folks that don't have any knowledge, but are told to do everything down pat. Because this black company, they're just placed in the middle of nowhere and expected to fight and defeat um, these uh, supernatural beings um, through their own will and guile and gumption alone. And I just love the way that he did that. Sure, some of it's over the top, but it's fantasy. So I, I totally forgive everything. Um, plus his, um, you know, the lady and the hangman and all these people, there's some pretty badass uh, bad guys in those stories that I really, really appreciate. Uh, and Mike, do you want to comment on that? Yeah, I, I have to actually bow out of the Glenn Cook question because I'm not uh, a Glenn Cook expert. He's not somebody who's writing I know much about. Like you, or I've heard all of the great talk about him, but uh, unfortunately, I, I have only so many hours in the day and so much reading to do. He's definitely on my list, but uh, I haven't got to him. Let me instead answer the question that you asked John uh, Joseph Adams about who are other great military fantasy authors. And I'd like to make sure that people are acknowledging Naomi Novik, whose, mm -hmm. whose Temeraire series is um, about the Napoleonic War, told from the point of view of a former Navy officer who's now in their aerial corps, which is mounted on dragons. And it is so, it is a fundamentally and foundationally military tale in its bones. Mm -hmm. And you see the military's, I mean, the story is revolves completely around a military. Um, and it's so interesting that, um, you know, she doesn't get put up there with, say, a Eric Flint or a John Ringo or, um, or a Glenn Cook, and she really should. Um, mm -hmm. and, uh, because if you take the military element out of Naomi Novik's story, the entire story completely collapses. And then two other things I wanted to mention is that um, two authors that are in this anthology that John Joseph Adams um, spoke about were Elizabeth Moon and Tanya Huff. I want to point out that they're both veterans. Elizabeth mm -hmm. Moon was a lieutenant in the Marine Corps. And uh, Tanya Huff was uh, in the Canadian Navy. Um, and another uh, military veteran who people don't often know as a military veteran is Karen Lord, uh, who's uh, sort of been making waves lately and who was one of the guests of honor at Confusion when I was there in Detroit. She uh, was a, a cadet in the Barbados Military Academy. Um, and uh, she didn't go on to a military career, but she absolutely served. Uh, I was just going to jump in and, and just uh... – 
uh, agree with Mike on Naomi Novik. His Majesty's Dragon is such a great book, and yeah, just like and the battles are so amazing mm. in there. Like it, it, it's worth it reading to, to read it just for that. But it has so much other great stuff too. Like there's a great relationship between you know the Dragon Temeraire and and his captain and everything. But I mean, yeah, no, the battles are amazing, and like you know, um, Peter Jackson had optioned it a while ago, and theoretically it's in development. That would God, that would be like the most amazing movie. I mean, I, you know, I, I have no faith in Peter Jackson at this point. Uh, uh, after the the Hobbit movies, but uh, that's another conversation. Um, but uh, uh, Joe Abercrombie is another person to mention as sort of a uh, you know somebody who does military fantasy well. Um, and uh, you know, I just want to throw that in there before we move on to other subjects. Okay, I, I want to talk actually because it's interesting to me, Mike. You know, you mentioned that Temeraire is it's the Napoleonic Wars with dragons, and it seems to me it's a real challenge for authors to introduce some really uh, big fantasy element like that. Because that would have ripple effects through the whole society, right? I mean, um, there was this discussion I thought was interesting. Like, would anyone in a medieval society bother to build a castle if dragons could just fly over the walls and wizards could just melt the walls with spells, right? Uh, could you just talk about that issue? Yeah, um, and this is the thing is, yeah, you're right. It is hard. But writing is hard. And, uh, <laughs> and you, you suck it up and you, and you, and you, ca- and you uh, Bilbo up and you do the <laughs> You do the work, um, and Naomi Novik did the work, and and you're right. Dragons do send ripples. For example, long wings, which are a, a, a dragon, a very powerful dragon because they can spit acid, are a key part of the British military and um, and a key asset to winning the war. But long wings will only accept female captains. So now you have to let women in the military, and because the captain of a dragon is like the captain of a ship, it's a very senior rank, the equivalent of a colonel. And it's a gateway to the admirality um, in the in the aerial corps. So women's status in society is completely in flux at the time of these books. And Naomi Novik deals with it brilliantly and convincingly. And uh, so my answer is those that question you have about whether people would bother to build castles is a real question. And it's part of the hard work of writing a good book is sitting down and puzzling it out and figuring it out. Right. And we've been talking about um, military fantasy through historical periods, but you guys both write series that basically combines fantasy with modern military stuff. And I'm curious about that. So Wes, why don't you tell us, I'm curious about this uh, SEAL Team 666. Let's just tell us a little bit about that series. So it's it's about an even more special SEAL team, if you can believe it, um, who protects America from supernatural attack. Um, it's a straight up military, um, not tongue in cheek, it's, it's a straight up story. Um, it just happens to be that um, our country and all the other countries of the world have always had to combat supernatural bad guys who are trying to do, you know, sometimes very small things or sometimes very large things. Um, my history of SEAL Team 666 goes back to the Continental Congress, and they've had different names along the way just based upon the popularity and and who the president is and who the Congress is and, and everything like that. Um, a funny thing. I heard that um, uh, Dwayne Johnson, when he uh, got the first script, it was kind of a tongue-in-cheek pastiche of a military unit. It was kind of like a black comedy, and and he turned it down. He said, absolutely not. He said, and I can't believe I'm saying this with my out loud voice, he said, I want it the way Weston wrote the book, and <laughs> and which is kind of, kind of awesome. Um, but the reason I did that is because I wanted every single military person who read that to be able to acknowledge, okay, this is real. This is what's happening. And boy, isn't it nice, instead of shooting at this enemy, 
we're actually trying to puzzle out how to defeat this Chinese demon, you know, or things like that. So it became a blast to write. Um, you know, in the first book, it's, it's East Asia, uh, a lot of East Asian mythology. And since um, I can speak Chinese and Vietnamese, I was really able to, you know, use a lot of that. And the second book takes place in Mexico because I live 10 miles from Mexico. I'm looking at it right now. And I really wanted to bring in that really rich, old historical culture. And then the third book is where I was able to go into England and play with um, a lot of the mythology that we know. But in some cases, I turned it on its head. For instance, I've made King Arthur the, the leader of the wild hunt, um, and he's a white supremacist. He wants to cleanse England of everybody who he believes isn't a true Breton. So um, uh, there's a lot of fun in it, but there's also a lot of, you know, real political, social commentary as well. Now, now the SEAL Team 666, are they able to take out a demon with, with guns, or do they need to use supernatural powers as well? Well, it depends on the demon, Dave. I mean, I mean, I know, I know you haven't been through the special secret <laughs> training that they go through, but you know, it depends on the demon. So, you know, and it's based on the uh, mythology as well. I mean, uh, sometimes if it's a lower demon, it's just a matter of the amount of lead you can pour into them. But other ones, you know, no matter how much you fire at them, um, nothing's going to happen. It's it's all dependent, and a lot of times these guys have to learn on the fly what's going to work, or they're going to die. <laughs> Uh, well, let's get Mike in here because your series is kind of similar. But I know your your um, special operators do use magical powers uh, in or, your series, right? Right. So in in the Shadow Ops series, the the idea is that magic has come back into the world and that it's um, conducted by a very small group of people through their the, the limbic system of the brain. And uh, if you manifest magic, um, you can either join the military or you can uh, go into monitoring and suppression programs. What you must not do is go selfer where you run and use magic outside of government control. And so the government has a supernatural operations corps, which is really what your only option to be a sanctioned military sorcerer who uses magic in the service of the government. But the reality of it is, is they spend the SOC, the Supernatural Operations Corps, spends most of their time running down selfers and bringing them to justice, either killing them or, or imprisoning them. Um, and uh, so the, the, at least the story begins, and I won't spoil it, with the regular army guy who's bought into this program and who's a helo pilot and is, is doing the cordons when these SOC teams go in to hit um, selfers that are barricaded in. And he comes up latent. And he comes up latent what's called a probe or prohibited school. Uh, so he ha he has no choice. He can't join the sock. He has to run, and um, wackiness ensues from there. But like Wes's stuff, again, like part of this is I'm just functioning on a level of isn't this awesome? And uh, you know what would happen if an Apache longbow went up against a hill giant? You know what what would that look like? That's just the fun stuff. But I'm also dealing with you know real socio political commentary. I'm dealing with. What happens when the binary bureaucratic military systems that are designed to make us safe and to make the use of deadly force predictable and repeatable uh, run afoul of the fact that life is not binary and that people are not, you know, people do not conform to those rules? And what happens when good people get steamrolled? And, and then, of course, the age old questions that we've been dealing with since 9 11 of, of what price are we willing to pay to feel safe? And we mentioned at the beginning, Mike, that you have a new book in this series out called Gemini Cell. You want to just say a bit about that? 
Yeah, the, the first thing I want to say is it's not actually in the series. It, it takes place um, – it's in the same universe, but it takes place many, many years before the first book, Control Point, with a totally different set of characters. And I did that on purpose because I want – I don't want readers to pick up Gemini Cell and think, well, I haven't read books one through three, so I'm not mm-hmm. going to even try. Gemini Cell is an entry point into my universe. You can start there. You don't have to have read anything else by me. And that deals with the very early days of the Great Reawakening when magic is just beginning to come back into the world and where it's not a publicly known, you know, there isn't like a supernatural operations court still in the realm where the United States government has cloaked it in secrecy and is trying to keep it hidden and trying to deal with it. It's much more occult. It's much, much darker. And um, I think it's my best writing so far. Um, but of course, every time I say that, I have this like smash of insecurity that I'm I'm <laughs> going to be proven wrong. But I, I mean, I hope that if people are, want to read me and haven't read me before, that that's where they'll start. Okay, great. And so, I mean, I think we've, we're hopefully giving people a sense of how wide the variety is of stories in this military fantasy genre. Um, and I mean, John, we mentioned you have this Operation Arcana anthology that just came out. Do you want to just say, are there any um, stories in that that cover some uh, area of military fantasy that we haven't talked at all about yet? Uh, well, let's see. Well, um, you know, uh, I mentioned that there's uh, some stories that take place, you know, with contemporary soldiers. And so, like, uh, uh, David Kletcher and uh, Tobias S. Bakel have a story called Rules of Enchantment, which I, I really like the title because it's playing on rules of engagement, you know. And uh, but that's where uh, they described it as sort of um, <laughs> they described it as um, Full Metal Jacket meets Lord of the Rings. It's not really quite that, but because uh, it's actually contemporary rather than like Full Metal Jacket era military. But it, so it's like mil- uh, contemporary military soldiers uh, find themselves suddenly like in a, in a Lord of the Rings type realm, um, and uh, you know they have to uh, you know they have to help out the you know the archetypal type characters. You know, so like uh, the princess who and, and you know have to save the world and all that kind of thing. Um, so there's that. And then, um, Linda Nagata has a story where there's contemporary soldiers that are, uh, they find themselves in this, um, uh, actually I can't remember. I, I think they, yeah, no, they, they do find themselves in a different realm as well, but it's like, it's kind of similar, like they were in the desert and it's like this desert like realm, but there's all these demons there that are, um, uh, that keep showing up and they don't know what they are or how to defeat them. And, you know, they, they're, they're shooting guns at them and, and, you know, it doesn't seem to have much effect. And, um, so like, that's one of the things that I really love about the genres that it gives you these, uh, opportunities to place soldiers in these situations, um, where they have to figure out how to deal with the impossible, you know, because I mean, I think we ask soldiers to, to do that kind of thing on a, on a regular basis. And so I think, uh, one of the things that military fantasy allows you to do is, um, you know, sort of literalize that, you know, and, uh, uh, and have some fun with it. Um, Genevieve Valentine's story uh, actually is about the Night Witches, uh, which is this Russian team of uh, fighter pilots that were all women. Um, and uh, I actually I specifically asked her to do that uh, because I was like, I had read out the Night Witches somewhere and I was like, how have I never read a story about them? Like, this is crazy. Like, I got to get somebody to write that. And so I, I, I got her to do it. Um, oh, and then uh, let's see. Shauna McGuire takes place during the war in Neverland. So uh, uh, anyway, yeah, that sort of gives you... Runs the, shows shows you the the diversity of the subject matter. Well, well, John, you mentioned titles, and didn't you run some sort of contest to come up with <laughs> a title for this anthology? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I could not, for the life of me, think of a title for this anthology, and like, and and that really pains me to say that because I really take pride in coming up with good titles. Like, I, I suggest new titles to authors all the time for their short stories. 
Um, but it's a lot easier to title a short story to find a good title for a short story because a short story title doesn't need to communicate the whole essence of a book on a shelf. You know, it's like it, it needs to basically intrigue you, make you want to read that story. Uh, whereas the uh, an a title for an anthology has to communicate the theme and it has to sound cool and it has to look good on a spine and all that kind of thing. And so I, I really couldn't come up with anything. And so I did a title contest. Um, and I got something like, I don't know, like 700 suggestions or something like that. And uh, so Operation Arcana was uh, was my favorite of the bunch. Um, there was a couple of good runners up that I liked that, um, that, that came close, but Operation Arcana was the winner. Um, and, uh, you know, so I gave free copy, a free copy of the book to the guy who suggested that. And, uh, also I gave one to the guy who had the runner up because he actually almost suggested Operation Arcana too. He, he suggested like arms in Arcana. Um, but then, and then he had another one too that came close, but, um, it was a play on rules of engagement, wasn't it? Right. Yeah. It was, a, yeah, it was, a, it was a different play on rules of engagement. I think, yeah. Other than rules of enchantment, which I already had as a story title, but, um, yeah. And that one was a bit too punny, uh, to work. Oh, it was runes of engagement. That's <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. it. Yeah, runes of engagement. Yeah, I really like that, and that, that was that was clever. It's a bit too punny for the title for the book, but um, yeah, it's a perfect I'm, I'm, title for like a Robert Aspirin book or something. Yeah, totally, totally. Yeah, cheers, yeah. Anthony. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, somebody needs to write a book called that. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, I was very happy with Operation Arcana, um, and uh, and I just I, and I love the way the cover turned out. Like I had actually suggested the cover um, to Bane. I had said, "How about instead of." Uh, a soldier shooting an M4 at a dragon, we try this. And but then I sort of planted that suggestion as an alternative because I didn't think they were gonna go with my my other suggestion. Um but so I was very glad when this turned out this way because um and you know it's the covers by Dominic Harmon and I think it looks great. It's exactly like you know it, like if I didn't get my number one idea, which may not have worked to be fair, uh this was exactly what I wanted and I think it looks great. I think it's um uh, it, I think it's a very inviting cover, and um, and I think like uh, you know, like I was saying earlier, how I, I wanted to make it clear that it wasn't just epic fantasy battles, and, and obviously, I think that this cover definitely tells you that. So, all right, cool, and yeah, and you guys, so you've been posting sort of interviews with the authors for this book, and Wes, something in your interview really struck me. You said, uh, "Ever since I read about Bilbo, my first experience with a literary warrior, all their ideals and travels and adventures have been something I wanted." Uh, and then you say Conan sealed it for me. I mean, could you just talk about? Um, sort of fantasy inspiring people to be real life warriors. Is that something you see a lot in the military? Or, well, I, I think I've learned so much um, knowledge, straight knowledge, nonfiction knowledge through the fiction I've read. Um, mainly because the authors took the time to do the right research and took the time to make it so that it was inspiring enough to read. I mean. I had a lot of choices coming out of high school. I, I could have been a lot of things, but, you know, I decided that, that you know, I wanted to be a soldier. Uh, I wanted to travel. I wanted to do all those things. You know, I wanted to kind of be a renaissance man. You look at, you look at Bilbo Baggins and, and, you know, he had everything, but he was willing to drop what he was doing eventually um, to, you know, go, go out and do this great uh, experience. And one thing that Mike could relate to is, is both he and I have gone kicking and screaming to many different military events, but after it's all said and done, we're so glad we've done it because um, had we not done it, we wouldn't have grown from the from the things that we encountered and participated in. Um, and I I think I recognize that from a really early age. Uh, and I, I just threw myself into <laughs> as many bad opportunities and as, and as many uh, bad deployments as possible because I knew that at the other end of it, you know, I was going to be better for it. And that desire was definitely inculcated by um, the idea that 
you know, one lone hobbit can make a difference, you know. If lo- one lone hobbit can make a difference, then this poor guy from, from Tennessee, you know, can make a difference too. So, yeah, absolutely, it was inspirational. I mean, Mike, do you want to add anything to that? I just, I mean, people who've heard me in other interviews have heard this before, is that I grew up a very scrawny, weakling nerd, and I got my butt kicked a lot and didn't have a lot of friends. It's sort of the classic nerd origin story. Um, <laughs> but the difference is that I, my, I mean, you know, I'm sure my parents will hear this, uh, but I wasn't really well parented as a kid. And I didn't have role models and I didn't have guidance. And so I turned to fantasy novels and I turned to Dungeons and Dragons um, as a way to look like, what does it mean to be a man? What does it mean to be an adult? And of course, my first representations of that were paladins and fighters and men in armor. Um, and that imprinted on me and it never went away. And the way I taught myself to be brave and the way I taught myself to dig in and work hard and the way I taught myself to, to stay in the fight all came from fantasy, uh, 100%. And then when I got older, my mom, uh, because my mom didn't think fantasy was legitimate, right? So she got me into history. She took me to the Arms and Armor Gallery at the Metropolitan Museum of Art because it looked like what was on the cover of my D&D manuals. <laughs> and of course, that stuck. Um, and it wasn't until later on that I'll never forget, I saw a passing review, uh, and it was a Marine captain out front, and he was um, raising his hand in salute. And it clicked in that I was like, oh, man, he's miming raising a knight's visor. That's what a salute is. And um, my point is this, is that your first step to changing who you are is imagining what you want to be. You have to kind of lie to yourself and trick yourself into believing that, yeah, I know I'm a scrawny kid now, but I can do this. And fantasy was the thing that gave me the tools to pretend and to imagine that I could be a knight until... One day I, I actually was able to do it. And I mean, look, knights are gone, you know, um, uh, but the closest you can come in modern society is, is an officer in the military. And uh, I got to say that, um, and I've said this too, is that when Rear Admiral Acton commissioned me and I raised my right hand to say the oath, in the back of my head, I was saying the words of the Knight's Watch. <laughs> I, am, I am the sword in the darkness. I am the watcher on the walls. I am the shield that guards the realms of men. Like I... I really did that consciously. Um, and it, was sort of, <laughs> it was sort of my nod to my nerd roots as I assumed my mantle as a, as a warrior in real life. That's awesome, Mike. That's <laughs> awesome. <laughs> and I mean, were you guys kind of the exception or did you meet a lot of people in the military who were also fantasy fans? I mean, look, uh, this is the thing about the military is I really want to dispel this idea that it's monolithic in any way. The military is a massive cross-section of a polyglot and diverse society. Everybody is in the military. We are you, we are you, and you are us. And when I, when I was in, um, stationed at the U.S. Embassy in the summer of 2006, they had a cork board, uh, for activities. So, uh, you know, it's amazing to think of this in a war zone, but it's true. So you'd have like salsa classes and like the spinning class at the gym or whatever. And there was a Warhammer, regular Warhammer 40K game going on. I never had time to play, but it was there. So, Mike, when you were uh, saying the, the Night's Watch vows to yourself, uh, did you also say the part where they say that they will take no wife, did, or did you leave that part out? Yeah, well, I mean, I, I, uh, I left that part out. Uh, <laughs> uh, well, actually, speaking of uh, Song of Ice and Fire again, uh, Mike, I saw that you wrote an, an article about PTSD in Game of Thrones. I wanted to ask you about that. Uh, yeah, so what um, – and I'm, I was really, really excited to get to do that. Um, I, I really feel that PTSD is – 
is a thing that isn't very well understood. I think it's a lot like autism in the respect that we know it exists. We can put, we, we know when we see it, but we really don't know what it is or how to deal with it. And I think that there's been a lot of really ineffectual effort to classify it as a pathology, as a thing that gets fixed. And the reality is that I think that PTSD is a permanent shift in perspective and that you can't treat it. What you have to do is teach the people that are suffering from it to set new goals and be in the world in a new way. And so what I did is I took the Cooper color system, which anyone who, who uses firearms, uh, you know, with any, any degree of professionalism knows about this. It's very, very famous. And I talk about the conditions uh, that Cooper presents, which is, you know, condition yellow, condition black, condition white, condition red, like the colors of a traffic light. And what I try to show in relating it to uh, characters from a Game of Thrones is how trauma doesn't just that people react to traumas in different ways and that having PTSD can enfranchise you and level you up in some ways at the same time as it uh, inhibits you and breaks you and, and that it's an incredibly complicated thing that affects different people in different ways. But I really wanted to try to break people out of this idea of thinking of it as a pathology. And uh, I thought, and the, and the chance to do it through Arya Stark and Theon Greyjoy were the two characters I analyzed in the essay was just so, so cool. Mike, I haven't read that essay, but I read I read your earlier essay on PTSD when you talk when when you initially talked about it. In fact, um, it was it was so good and so influential to me that it really influenced my current series, Grunt Life and Grunt Trader, um, which is from the point of view of a uh, a group of people who all have PTSD to some extent. Um, it's it's a PTSD positive novel because there aren't very many PTSD positive. Books out there. Normally, a PTSD sufferer is is the antagonist rather than the victim. Um, but I wanted to absolutely create this unit that was brought together for the sole purpose that they have PTSD, and that makes them special. And that, like you just said, it levels them up to be able to do something that nobody else can do. Um, PTSD, you know, it happens to virtually everybody who sees something that is out of the ordinary. You know, um, we all have it to some degree, those of us who have seen things and, and done things. It's just a matter of, you know, how we change our focus in life because we are no longer the person um, who saw those things. Uh, we, we're we now the person who was changed by them. Yeah, and, and Mike, I saw that your Game of Thrones essay, it's actually being taught now at the Institute of Combat Stress. Yeah, no, no, not the Game of Thrones essay, the uh, the essay that um, Wes is speaking of. This is a blog post I did called What PTSD Is. Yep. And if people Google Mike Cole and that, what PTSD, or just Mike Cole and PTSD, it's the first thing that pops up, is that yep. the Institute of Combat Stress reprinted it in their magazine. And, I, and I've heard from a number of military doctors that are using it in recovery groups. Um, and the thing is, I, I wish my fiction was this popular. Like, it <laughs> really, that really resonated with people. <laughs> But what was but what I really liked about that is, and that was one of those blog posts which scared the crap out of me to post because I didn't know how people were going to react because I'm basically turning to this establishment, this huge medical establishment that has been acknowledging that this thing is a problem and saying, yeah, you're you're off base here. Um, this is what I think is going on. But and look, I'm not a doctor, and I you know this is the kind of thing that needs somebody who can dedicate their life to it. Um, but I do think it clearly resonated with people, and that just the basic idea is just that it's not a disease; it's a change, a permanent change in worldview. And uh, it's a small thing, but I think it's pretty significant. All right, cool. So unfortunately, we're pretty much out of time. Um, before we go, Wes, I wanna, do want to ask you about the SEAL Team 666 movie. Uh, what's the status on that? Is, that uh, can you, is there anything you can tell us about that? Well, I think it's, um, it's, it's moving like everything in Hollywood does, glacial until it's not. Um, or, you know, 
they have they have a producer. Uh, they have the studio. They have the lead actor. The um, the Hayes brothers who did the screenplay for The Conjuring and Annabelle are 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 turned in uh, the screenplay to Dwayne Johnson, and he likes it. Um, so you know, it's just a matter of things coming together. You know, when you're people fail to realize that Dwayne Johnson was the number one box office selling uh, movie star in the universe. And so he has a lot of projects, a lot of things uh, that are happening. And I think he waits for things to come together. And when they come together, then he pays attention to them. So, you know, at this point, it's just really cool to talk about. And if it gets made into a, an actual movie or, or a series of movies, then that would just be just just beyond any of my expectations. <laughs> I'm really happy just to talk about it. Like, you know, you got you. All of us are sitting around a table having a beer right now, just saying, "Wouldn't it be cool if?" Yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I really hope they do that. We definitely need more movies with soldiers shooting demons and dragons and stuff. Uh, <laughs> Rain of Fire just didn't, didn't do, didn't do it yeah. for me. We, uh, we need some more of that stuff. Uh, okay, so John, a final word. Uh, any, any, uh, any other points you want to make? Any, fi- any other projects you want to mention? Uh, well, you just if um, if people want to go see those interviews that you mentioned, where the you know the authors in the anthology talk about their stories, you just go to johnjosephadams.com/slash/operation-arcana, um, and you can find those there. And there's also some free samples from the book. Um, and then just otherwise, I just wanted to throw a quick mention. Um, this isn't uh, military fantasy, but I uh, I helped curate a humble bundle, um, which is a and and it's a a post-apocalyptic bundle. Um, and so you can get my anthology, the end is nigh in there. And there's also a couple issues of light speed and a bunch of other cool stuff. There's like wool, uh, wool by Hugh Howie on audiobook and, uh, the wasteland, uh, comic book, um, a graphic novel collection of the wasteland comic book. Um, and so, you know, you can go there, you can, um, pay what you want and you get the whole bundle. Um, that's going to run until around April 1st. Uh, there's a little countdown on the website. You can see uh, how long it has, but, uh, uh, but yeah, I mean, go check it out. It's a uh, humblebundle.com slash books if you want to check it out. And uh, yeah, that's it. All right, great. So I think we're going to wrap things up there. So we've been speaking with John Joseph Adams, Mike Cole, and Weston Oaks. So guys, thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks so hey, much thanks for, for having, having us. Yeah, it yeah. was awesome. Thanks. Thanks, Dave. And that was our panel. So big thanks again to John Joseph Adams, Mike Cole, and Weston Oaks for joining us on the show. Big thanks as well to everyone who's given us five stars on iTunes, including HF605, who writes, I stumbled across Geek's Guide to the Galaxy while looking for podcasts on writing. The podcasts have great guests and discuss interesting topics in all fields of genre, which is something I can totally sink my teeth into. Good work, guys, and keep bringing your A-game. So big thanks again to HF605 for that great review. Big thanks as well to everyone who signed up this week to support us on Patreon, including Karen Robertson, Roger Barr, Ross Harrison, and Tian Nguyen. That brings our total up to $198.64 per episode. And remember that if we hit $250 per episode, that'll guarantee that the show continues through the end of this year. And if you'd prefer to make a one-time or fixed monthly contribution, you can do that over at geeksguideshow.com slash crowdfunding. And I'd like to give a very special thank you to Liz Kaiser, who just made a very generous $50 contribution, and to Oz Penguin from Australia, who just made a very generous $100 contribution. So thanks, guys. We really appreciate it. All right, so that was our show. So thanks, everyone, for listening, and we'll see you next time. 
The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkirtley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.